Welcome to Pete's Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy. This time around, we're going to get started on a huge topic, asthma. I say we're going to get started because rather than trying to cram everything into one episode and having it either be too little information or way too long, I'm splitting it into two parts. In this episode, we'll cover risk assessment and diagnosis with just a little bit about acute exacerbations, and in part two, we'll get into medications and how to manage long-term treatment. Let's get started. When we say asthma, what we're really doing is describing a pattern of symptoms that probably fits more than just one disease process. Considering what a wide range of symptoms people experience and how differently they respond to treatments, there might be dozens of underlying conditions that all paint a picture that we recognize as asthma. Unfortunately, we don't know what those conditions are, so we're left looking at the final common pathway. Inflammation, mucus production, swelling, and smooth muscle constriction in the airways, all of which leads to obstruction and air trapping. Clinically, that causes wheezing, coughing, chest tightness, shortness of breath, and a prolonged expiratory phase. In a lot of cases, all of that airway inflammation is an exaggerated version of a normal physiologic response. Most of us will cough and have some trouble breathing if there's a lot of dust in the air, but we don't get to the point where we start wheezing and can't recover. The same goes for viruses, cold weather, and any number of potential allergens. The inflammatory response itself isn't the problem, it's how big that response is and how hard it is to control. This view of asthma is why we sometimes call it reactive airway disease, especially before the official diagnosis is made. Speaking of the time before we make a diagnosis of asthma, the first time a child does anything that even resembles wheezing, you can almost guarantee his parents will ask you if he has asthma. And the answer is a resounding maybe. Wheezing is an incredibly common problem. So common that I found three different classification systems for wheezing phenotypes in the first 10 minutes I was researching this episode. Somewhere around 50% of kids wheeze at some point in the first year of life, and about 20% continue to have wheezing as they get older. Still, the most recent estimate from the CDC is just over 8% of kids, and the same percentage of adults, have asthma. That means that by the numbers, the majority of people who wheeze don't have asthma. It's understandable for parents to be concerned, particularly if they have asthma themselves. But for everybody but the worst first-time wheezers, there's a lot of watching and waiting before we make any decisions. We can, however, make some educated guesses. Infants who get bronchiolitis are more likely to have episodes of wheezing in early childhood. That association doesn't carry through for being diagnosed with asthma, but it is something you can use to give parents a heads-up going forward. True asthma risk factors are the usual mix of genetic and environmental. First on the list is atopic disease, the tendency towards developing allergic reactions. The Tucson Children's Respiratory Study tracked 1,246 people from birth and found that a predisposition to allergy was a primary risk factor for developing asthma, and other large studies have found that atopic disease is strongly associated with persistent wheezing. There's a concept called the atopic march, which is ingrained enough that I can't seem to find who invented the term. The idea is that early in life, susceptible kids start out with atopic dermatitis or eczema. Later, they develop other allergic diseases like food allergies and allergic rhinitis, then keep marching right on down the path to a diagnosis of asthma. The type of environmental allergen exposure also seems to make a difference, 
although the association isn't quite clear. Sensitization to indoor allergens like mites, pet allergens, cockroaches, and fungi has a stronger association with asthma than outdoor allergens. There was a pretty cool study published in 1994 by a group led by Erika von Mutius that looked at the prevalence of asthma and atopy in East and West Germany after the country was reunified. The idea was that the two groups would have different exposure histories, but be similar enough to control for genetic differences. They studied kids between 9 and 11 years old with a questionnaire, cold air challenge, and allergy skin prick testing to look for asthma, atopic disease, and airway hyperreactivity. West German kids had a much higher rate of asthma, 5.9% compared to 3.9%, and twice the rate of atopic sensitization, particularly sensitization to cats, mites, and pollen. Smoke exposure is another huge risk factor, both secondhand and active smoking. We all tell our patients not to smoke, so we won't dwell on that point, but getting their parents to quit can be just as important. The data shows that moms who smoke are a bigger risk than dads, possibly because kids spend more time around their mothers, especially when they're younger. A study published in Pediatrics in 1990 found that kids whose mothers smoked at least half a pack of cigarettes per day were twice as likely to develop asthma. So now you can add that to the list of things you bring out to convince parents to quit smoking. Family history is the last major risk factor we'll touch on, but it's complicated. Having a parent with asthma increases a kid's chances of having asthma, but it's not as simple as drawing up Punnett squares. Changes in different genes can lead to the same phenotype, small changes in multiple different genes can work together, and that's before you even touch on the environmental factors and epigenetics. On top of that, people with African and Hispanic ancestry have been underrepresented in studies on asthma genetics, even though those groups have higher rates of asthma so there's a lot of data we haven't even begun to see. Like I said, it's complicated. For now, just remembering that a family history of asthma increases an individual's risk is probably enough. With all the known risk factors out there, of course there are risk assessment tools. The most widely used one, and the one that kept coming up as I studied for boards, is the Asthma Predictive Index, or API. It was developed based on data from the Tucson Children's Respiratory Study using kids who had at least one episode of wheezing in their first three years of life and gives an estimated asthma risk based on five criteria. The two major criteria are clinician-diagnosed eczema and a parental history of asthma, and the three minor criteria are clinician-diagnosed allergic rhinitis, wheezing outside of colds, and 4% or more eosinophils on a blood sample. One major or two minor criteria is enough for a positive screen, which translates to around 80% specificity for predicting a diagnosis of asthma later in life. If the child has three or more episodes of wheezing in the last year, that specificity jumps all the way up to 95%. The Asthma Predictive Index is a useful tool, and easy to remember with just five criteria, but it's a blunt instrument. That high specificity comes at the cost of a lot of false positive results. So you're catching most of the kids who will have asthma, but also a lot of them who won't. There are some other tools out there to try to sort patients out a little bit more. The Isle of Wight score, the Leicestershire tool, the Persistent Asthma Predictive score, but we're only going to talk about one of them, the Pediatric Asthma Risk Score. Why this one? Because it's the newest, the paper was published in December of 2018, 
and because the second author is one of my friends from residency. Hi, Eric, and thanks for posting this article. The Pediatric Asthma Risk Score uses six factors and a point system to determine the risk of a child being diagnosed with asthma by the time she turns seven. A parent with asthma, a diagnosis of eczema under three years old, a positive skin prick test to two or more allergens, and African-American race are all worth two points, while wheezing outside of colds and wheezing under three years old are each worth three points. In the initial paper, the pediatric asthma risk score was 68% sensitive and 77% specific for asthma. The specificity isn't as high as the API, but it is better balanced. Where it comes out best is determining kids at the lower end of the risk spectrum. The risk bumps up higher the more points a patient has. We won't go through the whole scale, but zero points correlates to a 3% risk of asthma. It climbs to 15% at 5 points, 25% at 7, crosses over the 50-50 boundary to a 58% risk at 11 points, and tops out at 79% with a score of 14 points. It's still not perfect, no new tool is, but it's nice to have a risk scale that divides things up a little bit more. Risk scales are great for letting you know which patients you should keep an eye on, but eventually you have to come down and make a diagnosis. If nothing else, you should have gotten by now that not everything that wheezes is asthma, so let's get into how to sort things out. First, you need to make sure your patient is stable. If you have someone who's wheezing and distressed right in front of you, treatment takes priority over checking boxes and diagnostic criteria. Management for acute asthma or wheezing exacerbations is to hit the patient hard with bronchodilators, typically a lot of albuterol, but sometimes intravenous theophylin or magnesium to act as smooth muscle relaxers if the symptoms are more severe. You also usually start a course of systemic steroids to deal with inflammation and de-escalate therapy as the patient improves. While you're going through all of that initial treatment, you have to rule out some of the other underlying problems that can cause kids to wheeze. It's not usually too hard to find things like cystic fibrosis, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and congenital heart disease in your patient's history, but poor weight gain and more systemic symptoms will help separate those problems from asthma for kids who haven't had much healthcare contact. Wheezing that seems to be prominent in one lung field and doesn't necessarily respond to bronchodilators can be a sign of a foreign body in the airway, which is always something to consider at the right developmental level. When you get to trying to make a diagnosis of asthma, the history and symptom pattern often matter a lot more than what the patient is feeling at that moment. Asthma is, by definition, a disease with fluctuating symptoms, so there's a lot of variability in what you might find on physical exam. If your patient's symptoms are flaring up, or if they have more chronic asthma, you might hear decreased air entry, wheezing, and a prolonged expiratory phase when you listen to the lungs, although it's almost equally likely that the respiratory exam will be completely normal. You can also check for signs of atopic disease like rhinitis, conjunctivitis, and eczema to help support a diagnosis of asthma, but the presence or absence of those signs isn't going to be the deciding factor. On history, coughing, wheezing, and shortness of breath are still the symptoms you're looking for, and it's more likely to be asthma if those symptoms are seasonal, have certain environmental triggers, or improve with medications. Symptoms worsening with activity at night or first thing in the morning also tip you more towards asthma. The patient is less likely to have asthma if there's an isolated cough, chronic sputum production, 
chest pain, or shortness of breath that's associated with dizziness or lightheadedness. In the end, making a diagnosis of asthma takes a history of typical symptoms, whether they're intermittent or chronic, plus demonstration of variable, reversible airway obstruction. The ideal way to identify that obstruction is with spirometry, which the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program recommends for all patients five or older who you suspect of having asthma. As a quick refresher, spirometry is a test of lung function that measures how much air a person can move in and out and how quickly they can do it. The predicted values for each person are based on age, sex, height, and race, and the results come out as both a table of numbers and a graph that shows the change in inspiratory and expiratory flow at different volumes. Since we're an all-audio podcast, we'll skip flow volume loops and focus on the numbers. The two numbers we care most about in diagnosing asthma are the forced vital capacity, or FVC, and the forced expiratory volume in one second, or FEV1. The FVC is the maximum amount of air a person can force out of their lungs after taking the deepest possible breath, and the FEV1 is the maximum volume that can be pushed out in the first second of exhalation. For people with obstructive lung diseases like asthma, Air doesn't flow out of the lungs as easily, which decreases the FEV1 and the FEV1 to FVC ratio. Airflow obstruction is defined as an FEV1 of less than 80% predicted and an FEV1 to FVC ratio of less than 0.85. Peak flow meters, those little handheld devices that measure maximum expiratory flow rate, are another option for detecting airway obstruction and work on the same principle. Unfortunately, they're not the most reliable. The meters themselves are very effort dependent, but unlike spirometry where the flow volume loops can give you an idea that the test isn't reliable, there isn't any kind of quality control. There's also more variability in predicted peak flow values, which makes it hard to use them to make a diagnosis of obstruction. That being said, the same peak flow meter used by the same person over time will give consistent results, so they can be useful for tracking symptoms over time and for monitoring response to treatment. Spirometry helps identify obstruction, but remember for asthma we need variable, reversible obstruction, and we have a few ways we can find it. The easiest is for the patient to show improvement in their spirometry after getting a dose of a beta agonist like albuterol. Bronchodilator response is defined as at least a 12% increase in FEV1 or FVC, and you can see enough improvement to diagnose asthma even if the baseline spirometry looks pretty normal. As a caveat, that 12% number comes from adult studies, and some papers I found thought the threshold should be closer to 8% for making a diagnosis in pediatrics. If your patient has normal baseline spirometry and nothing changes with albuterol, the next step is to challenge him to see if you can trigger an episode of bronchospasm. The classic test, and standardized tests do love the classics, is the methacholine challenge. Methacholine is an acetylcholine analog that acts as a bronchoconstrictor, and literally its only indication for use is in diagnostic testing. They actually use the methacholine challenge test on Olympic athletes to prove that they have asthma, since beta agonists are technically listed as banned performance-enhancing substances unless you have a therapeutic exemption. There are dosing and testing protocols for using methacholine, but the general idea is that you're trying to trigger bronchoconstriction and airway obstruction as evidenced by a drop from baseline FEV1, and then to reverse it with albuterol. There are other medications that can be used in provocation testing, 
and there are protocols for doing exercise challenges as well. But the goal stays the same, uncovering reversible airway obstruction. You might have noticed that all of these tests take a fair amount of technique and cooperation from your patient. That's far from a given in pediatrics, and even the most developmentally advanced two-year-old with wheezing is not going to be able to give you reliable spherometry. There's something called impulse oscillometry that only requires passive cooperation from the patient, but it's not something that's widely available, as evidenced by the fact that I had never heard of it until I started researching this episode. In cases where the story points towards asthma, but the patient isn't able to do the testing, the general consensus is to use a trial of asthma treatment and use the response to therapy as evidence for the diagnosis. And starting therapy is where we'll pick up in part two. For points to remember in this episode, keep in mind that not everything that wheezes is asthma, especially in younger kids. Allergies, eczema, and a family history of asthma are all major risk factors, and tools like the Asthma Predictive Index and Pediatric Asthma Risk Score can help you get an idea of how likely a patient is to eventually be diagnosed. To make the diagnosis, you need a compatible history along with documented reversible airway obstruction, preferably with spirometry. Thanks for listening to Part 1 on Asthma. If you like this episode, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you found us. You can send any suggestions or other feedback to pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Pete's Soup.